All right, welcome everybody to the Wealth and Wellbeing Podcast. I am your host, Tyler Resch, and I'm joined again by Ellie Luce. Ellie, how are you? Good, how are you? I am great. Today we have a guest on the podcast that we have wanted on. Um, we have asked him to join us today, and there was, frankly, there were a ton of topics we could have um, explored with him, but I think we're going to start kind of at the crux of it all. So we have as our special guest today, Chris Nahibi, and we are going to be talking credit. Chris, welcome. Hi, thanks for having me, guys. Of course, like I said, we've we've wanted to have you on the on the pod, and we. Um, you know, there's there's all these different areas where we could where we could speak to you about. But what we really want to talk about today is is credit. Credit, um, you know, tends to have some, carry somewhat of a negative connotation. But really, credit is an entry point for a lot of people into the banking world. And what we wanted to do was talk a little bit about you know what um, what credit essentially means for somebody. So sort of starting off somewhat basic, but then quickly getting into what does credit look like in 2021? It certainly has changed. Um, you know, many of our listeners, you know, may have maybe in the stage of life where they are looking at buying a home. Um, you know, they've already sort of gone through the credit 101 cycle of having credit cards, perhaps, you know, in college or after college. But they're they're getting to a point now where they, you know, want to know a little bit more about what credit means and how to shape their credit. And I think what we're learning and what we've learned from you, Chris, just in our talkings with you at, and, and speaking with you in the halls of First Foundation is that um, it the, the world of credit has changed because of the way the economy has changed. So maybe just as a starting off point, um, you can just share with us a little bit about what is going on with credit and um, you know currently how are credit scores calculated and, and why do they matter? I'm also going to jump in right before you answer that, Chris, and just give our audience a brief background that Chris is our chief credit officer here amongst plenty of other accomplishments, and he's a lawyer. So he has his knowledge is very sound, and he, he knows what he's talking about. Or depending on which camp you're in, I'm also the guy you don't <laughs> want to talk to in any set of circumstances. So uh, yeah, you, you guys' point's well taken. I think the funny thing to start off with is that credit generally has a negative connotation. Like You only talk about it in, in a bad news set of circumstances. Otherwise... If everything's great, you don't ever talk about it, right? So it's kind of an interesting paradigm in that we all should know about it, get educated on it in school, and instead we find out about it when when you know we hit those life failures at times. And it's interesting to think that that the algorithm that we now use for the credit scoring model was created, you know, quite a long time ago, almost a hundred years ago at this point. Mm-hmm. And and we all look at our credit score and think like, oh my god, like that number is an indication of who I am. It, it's my number in the world, but is it really though? Probably not. I mean, so much. Well, of, hopefully not. Yeah, I mean, well, if it is, I'm in the high sevens, low eights, depending on what time of day it is. So now you know who I am, right? <laughs> well, yeah, and I mean, cre- credits used. I mean, I guess the reason people might think that is because it seems like credit comes up on on everything. You use it for a job application. Any account that you want to open with a financial institution, they're going to ask for your credit or run a credit check. But I mean, my gosh, my gas company requires a credit score. So, you know, where do we draw the line on that and and how do we sort of navigate what it's being used for? And, and, you know, we'll get into in, in our discussions today, we'll get into talking about how to optimize your credit score. But just again, it's so prolific in our lives. Um, is there any metric that is a better measurement right now on, you know, someone's credit worthiness than your credit score, I, I think you'd be hard pressed um, 
to you know find something that isn't being so universally used. That's true, and, and it's it's crazy to think that that the the credit score reporting agencies, Equifax, Experian, TransUnion, these these are private companies. This is not a government sponsored thing. These are private companies that use an algorithm, right? And that algorithm is indicative of your score. And, and what's crazy is is just like you noted, everything we do, people use that to say, is this person somebody I can trust? That's why it's so important that we learn about it and we understand, you know, what those numbers mean and, and how to manipulate those numbers. And I'm not saying manipulate in a bad way. What I'm saying is, is that we all need to understand just a basic, you know, kind of guideline of, of how we can protect that number because it does matter. You know, you want to get a cell phone at a cell phone store, they pull your credit. Gas company, same thing. And and all these little polls actually impact your credit. They they bring your score down a couple points here and there, you know, and in some circumstances, you know, getting too many of them could be bad and some of them could be not impactful. One of the things I talk about with a lot of people is that you know, this is probably one of the classes in high school that we should all have, but we don't ever have it, you know, and and it's shocking to think that people will get to, you know, their first home before this really becomes an impactful thing for them. Like, oh, my gosh, I'm buying a home. Oh, my gosh, I get better rates if I, if I got a higher number. And, you know, now it's like, well, you spent the last, you know, three, four years of your life using credit cards, but were you using them strategically? Right. So, yeah. yeah. And, and I want to get into that because I, I want to figure out, I mean, for our audience, I want to provide some actionable steps to improving your credit score. But we, before we dive into that, I mean, who who in the world benefits from good credit? Is it typically the consumer or are the financial institutions also benefactors of it? And then on the flip side of that, the corollary, who benefits from bad credit if there's you know an opposite side to that equation? The bad credit side is, is a multi-billion dollar predatory business in a lot of mm-hmm. ways. And there's a lot of people out there that mean good. And there's a lot of people out there that mean bad. But people with bad credit scores tend to get taken advantage of because they're desperate to get the benefits of good credit. And, right. and I think that it's, it's one of the saddest things I see. You know, credit consolidation services are out there and those have its benefits in some ways. And in some ways it has its negative in that it can completely take down your credit score. Most people don't realize that if you actually work out your credit on your own terms and pay them at the full balances rather than using a credit consolidation company, you actually have a better score in the long run than you do consolidating your credit. You're basically kind of throwing in the towel for a couple of years. It's almost tantamount to having a bankruptcy, which would would effectively wipe your credit out. And people don't know that because these services are being sold as a benefit to them. Like, let me help you manage your financial position. And don't get me wrong. There's, there's a time and place for all those things. And it might be helpful to some people. But but by the overwhelming majority, if you can manage and, and learn to pay your bills off or, or you can pay yourself through, through through some debt without you know negotiating down those balances, you'll be in a better financial position. But you'll also have a better credit score indicative of somebody who's more responsible. And the benefits to that. You know, you get great rates. You get you get better service. You get, you know, you get less questions asked whenever you're getting a home loan. Uh, you don't have so many derogatory items on your credit report. And we'll get into that. You know, where, where your credit report comes from, what those scores look like, and, and little steps that we we can do to improve it. Yeah, I, I, thanks for clarifying that because I, I I do want everyone to go into this with eyes wide open. Is that there there are people that benefit from there being bad credit out there, and like you said, it's not totally nefarious, but it is a you know, billion plus dollar industry. So we have to be a little bit careful um, because, you know, in that, you know, you don't want to get caught up in that cycle. And it seems to me like a cycle. I mean, you alluded to the fact that it's tantamount to, to bankruptcy. And I, I think that's, you know, that's a fair, that's a fair assessment because I don't know how you overcome that. But, but yeah, moving sort of into this, um, you know, this subject matter of, of how, 
you can optimize your credit score. What are some of the what are some of the mistakes that you see when people do start addressing their credit score? So let's say they're ready to, you know, maybe they've waited so long that it is the time to buy their house, or maybe they're getting a head start on it and they're maybe five to ten years out from buying a house. What when they come to someone like you who's, you know, happy to provide an educational or some advice around optimizing credit score in their mind, they think they think they've got it figured out. What it, what does that typically look like? Like, what's the conventional wisdom that needs to be debunked right out of the gate? Right out of the gate, I'll tell you that I think people think that just paying your credit on time is just enough. Yeah, and I can tell you that that in and of itself is is frankly a farce. It's not real. And and, and we've been trained. Oh, hey, you pay your your credit cards on time. You pay as responsible. You're totally fine. But that's only one component of, of a much bigger credit picture. For example, how many trade lines or how many lines of credit you have with different people, whether that's an auto loan or a credit card or a home loan, that actually matters. Mm-hmm. And if you have too much credit, it's, it's, it's a very challenging you know, thing for the algorithm to look at you favorably in because there's two ways that the credit algorithm will look at you. Either you have too much credit and you're not utilizing enough of it, meaning you're not spending enough, or you have no credit and you know, you're, you're spending uh, too much. You know, you have little or no credit and you're spending too much. Your your balances are high on your credit card. So if you have high balances or no balances, that can actually impact you negatively in both cases. Because what the algorithm does is it takes extremes and changes your score. So the, the average American has four credit cards in this country. When you think about it, why do we really need four credit cards? You might have a perk program on one. You might have like a Nordstrom or department store card on another hand. But you have all these trade lines, and in most cases, it's easy access to tap into. We go into a store and we say, you know what, I, I want to buy this. I don't have the cash right now. I'm going to put it on here and I'm going to make payments. But those things can hinder you, you and your score with time. So simply, simply just having credit and paying on time is not necessarily enough. If your average balances are, are you know, high or you're not even utilizing the credit that you have, that, that looks bad on your actual credit score. Another, another misnomer, which is crazy, but it's true is that the types of credit you get, whether they're short-term or long-term debt, uh, those matter. And I'll give you a great, great example, right? A credit card would be your short-term revolving debt, but your, your car payments, your home loans, your mortgage payments, those are long-term installment loans. And believe it or not, those impact your score differently. Your long-term debt, like your cars and your mortgages, those prop up your score in a big way, whereas your credit cards, they can be impacted and your score can change dramatically. So if you have a car payment and a home loan, that's like that serves almost like an anchor in the algorithm to make sure your score stays higher so long as you're paying it on time and you pay it off according to plan. Yeah, that's interesting. Okay, so there's any other conventional wisdom that needs to be debunked because those are two big ones to unpack. Well, and that's that's the, that's the insanity, those, right? We don't yeah. we don't there's learn about these things more. in school. There's a million more, and and I'll tell you right now, one of the biggest problems that I have, and this is also a conventional wisdom, you know, debunking thing in, in many cases, is that. A lot of the younger generation, if you're call it 19 to 25, and you've grown up in a different technological world than, than the rest of us have that are probably you know 30 plus, or in my case, over 40 now, uh, you, you've got a different perspective on life and how to utilize things, right? So a lot of people don't have cars, they use Uber. A lot of people don't have a mortgage payment, they, they use Airbnb. And as you start kind of going down the, the process of how some of these new services that are being utilized by a younger, more open generation, you realize that they're not going to have things like a mortgage on, on their credit report, or they're not going to have things like a, a car loan on, on their credit report. Now, all they might have is credit cards if they do have any kind of credit whatsoever, which means their score 
has a lot more volatility in it because they might have one credit card and they might not even have a balance on it, or they might have one credit card and it's used you know, 50, 65% of its maximum capacity. And that might actually look like they're using way too much of their overall credit available to them. What's yeah, the this like- notion of having no credit is really interesting. It's, um, you, you touched on all the, the, key, the key points associated with this, the new economy, and that's kind of what we were alluding to in the, the opening remarks. And I, I, you know, I also heard you loud and clear about the types of credit and um, the installment payment type credit. And it makes me wonder, you know, do these new offers like Affirm or Klarna or other type payments, do those um, have or what type of effect do those have on your credit score? So maybe maybe starting just with the no credit folks and, you know, the the um, the Uber using Lyft using riding bike to work person who is living in an Airbnb or a shared apartment setting where they're not the the primary person on the lease, how do they establish credit in this new this new economy? Yeah, great question. So it's funny, like most leases and most rental properties, if you were to go rent them, they check your credit score when you get it to make sure that you're you know, a qualified person to live there or they don't see any credit risk, you haven't been foreclosed on, but they don't actually report as a trade line on your credit report. So a yeah. lot of people who don't own property or have their name on a lease or even somebody who got a rent from you know, a large renter in, in their major metropolitan area, they're not reporting to the credit bureaus on your behalf. So, I mean, I, look, we've all been there. We've all been younger and, and did those things. And I got to tell you, it, it's challenging in this generation because if you come from a wealthy, affluent family and you have the luxury uh, of not having to take out credit or take out any kind of student loans, it also impacts you. You'd be surprised how many young kids that come in that have very, very successful you know, families doing well for themselves, never had to rely on credit, who actually have no credit scores or have bad yeah. credit scores because they've lived their lives in exactly that way. You know, they've, they've rented in Los Angeles and they went to school in Los Angeles. They've paid for things out of cash. And some people, you know, they might just be fully responsible and they, they save their money and they spend their money like you know, when they have it and they don't spend when they don't have it. So they've never wanted to get a credit card because they, there's a stigma to credit as being a bad thing. Mm-hmm. Yet the irony is, is as you start to get into what, what I do for a living and looking at people's credit and financial pictures, you realize that the wealthy, whether they're educated wealthy or self-made wealthy, start to understand and learn how to use credit to leverage for success and build wealth. And that that's where that young different perspective of credit is bad and the stigma tends to flip on side of its head Mm -hmm. right yeah that makes sense it's true because i mean i know growing up it was like have one credit card that's it you shouldn't be opening all these credit cards it's not good for your credit score and i mean i'm well past that 25 year old age range and i i don't have very many credit cards i mean i only have two yeah, and that's and it, you know, that's exactly what I was told, right? You know, credit's yeah. bad. Don't open more credit cards. You don't need them. Yeah. Oh, those those are terrible. And there there is some truth to that. If you open up a credit card and then you ultimately close it, closing that mm-hmm. trade line or closing out that credit card actually has a negative impact hurts on your credit you, score. Yeah. It, it does hurt you. So, effectively, anything you do with credit, even if you just let it sit there, will improve or not improve, or you know, it'll have some impact to your score. So we need to be more strategic in how we think about this. And that's one of the things where I think some of the new technology doesn't really think about that. So when you're going to these websites and you see the buy it now option and you can use a short term loan to buy something for like 90 bucks or 100 bucks, you know, those things aren't helping your credit. You'd almost be better off getting a credit card, 
putting it on your credit card and paying down that credit card than you would be opening up a trade line and then closing it a couple months later once it's paid for if that company even reports to your credit report. And a lot of them don't. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask. So they, they, they're they not set up to do that typically? Is that their business model? Uh, depending on the dollar amount and the size, some of them mm -hmm. just don't think it's an economically viable option for them to report like a 90 or $200 item on your credit report because there's also compliance risk for them and they have a responsibility to make sure they report appropriately. So a lot of them don't even report on, on their trade lines. They don't show up on a credit report. So it's not so helping if I'm you at all. If I'm buying a, right, if I'm buying a new pair of um, Jordans, and I, you know, got the latest drop on sneakers and um, <laughs> I'm offered to, you know, do five installments of $50 to pay for my $150 Jordans. Um, how is a firm or Klarna or some of the other entities that are offering these services? And again, I don't we don't have any affiliation with them and I don't know mm -hmm. if they're even on the Nike website, but just for hypothetical sake, these companies, how do they how do they make money on this or what's their business model? Well, their business model is simple, right? They're charging interest for giving you a loan, and and I've but they're but there's there's they're not charging me interest, like they're that's zero dollars to me. Are they charging it to the to the the vendor? Oh well, in the case of, of their their buying, the vendor gets more sales for allowing them as a service to be on the website. So they know okay, that so somebody, they're they're right. They're seeing an increase in sales because the they have higher conversion rates with that offer out there, and so yeah, and, I, and somehow they have both an economic. Sides of that. Yeah, and okay. there's a great pitch that I heard. There's a young guy, he's actually a, a second cousin of mine. He he's an adamant user of a firm, uh -huh. and I couldn't figure out why. I'm like, man, you're crazy. Why do you keep buying this stuff? You have credit cards, like you know what you're doing. Like why, why, yeah, why? What's the point? And he loved it, and and he actually took. Uh, it shocked me. He took me to a place I didn't think it'd go. He said, "Look, man, this is a cash flow play for me." I'm like, "What?" Mm -hmm. He said, "Look, if I buy you know these shoes at two hundred dollars." Nike dropped some shoes this morning. I didn't get them, so I'm a little upset. So $200. Yeah, that sorry. Was, that was it's the a it's, a, it's a sore yeah. subject for all of us sometimes. It's, it's, I know. it's, a, it's a sore <laughs> subject. Damn that, damn that app. Um, anyway, if you were to go online and you were to buy them and you were to use a firm, you're only putting down a portion of that money as part of your mm -hmm. payment plan that you set right. up. So in his mind, I just spent 30 bucks, 40 bucks, whatever I put down up front, and then I can pay the rest of that over the next couple months. My immediate cash flow in, in this month's perspective is not $200 to the negative. It's only $30 or $40 to the negative. Sure. And if I space that out and I think about my life in terms of cash flow, those things work great for me. Now, what I would say to him is you can do that same thing on a credit card. And yes, you are mm -hmm. paying a little bit of interest, but you know, you're credit. you're building credit at the same time. And, and I think that that's, that's kind of the disconnect for someone from his generation. But I will say cash flow is king, and that is a very, very astute observation on his part. And that's a great strategic way to use those companies to just know mm -hmm. that it's not going to benefit you from a credit perspective. From a credit standpoint. Okay, right. So that makes sense. So then, you know, if if we are speaking to somebody in that generational cohort who has either grown up with the fundamental disposition that credit is, quote, bad – or they're just they just don't have needs for credit in their in their life. Like we said, you know, they might bike to work, they might um, rent an apartment, um, and they're paying for things with cash. How do they establish credit in this world? Oh man, I love this question. It's one of my favorites because I get it a lot, especially when people go to buy a home for the first time and they say, "Hey, Chris, I don't know where to go," and sure. the answer is the same. You all have a relationship with the bank. You just don't appreciate it. And this is the, mm -hmm. this is one of the things that it just 
it goes to show you how we don't think about the world from a financial perspective. And I'll give you a great example just to answer the question. And it works every single time. If you have a job or if you have a bank account anywhere and your parents put money into it or you have savings that your grandparents gave you or you just got money that you saved from random stuff you sold on eBay, you have a relationship with a bank and that bank does indeed issue credit. Me personally, I'm a huge proponent of community banks, not because we all work at one, but because I believe you get a better service level proposition. You Relationship. Get a, exactly. Mm-hmm. Relationships are the truest form of currency. As much as we like to think that, that money matters, money can come and go. Your relationship with your credit card company, your relationship with your bank, the people that you interact with, they will help you make more money over time. And yeah, if you don't have credit or you want to get started, go to whoever has your deposit accounts and ask them what products they have. Do you have a credit card? My first credit card, true story. My dad took me when I was 18 years old to Wells Fargo. And the first thing he did was open up an account and got me a credit card with a whopping $500 limit. I'm pretty sure that limit's like $505 today because Wells Fargo doesn't (laughs) love me that much. But I still have the credit card. Yeah. Yep. That's, That's like basically my story. Yeah, and that that's yeah. that that's good. That's good parenting. That's good, you know, financial oversight. You probably got a little checkbook and you look, yep. looked at it too. <laughs> but but those are the things that that we as a generation have lost. Because think about being a kid today. You don't necessarily get a checkbook the same way anymore unless no. you want it. And you can no. go online instantly and look at your look at your your income and outflow, and and you can see that. Whereas before, you had to know what you spent and keep a, mm-hmm. a, a GL get a balance a that checkbook. <laughs> right. So yeah. and that's. And that's that's huge when it comes to credit with with the younger generation is is knowing how much you spend because humans are very impulsive. We're very tribal. Those Jordans came out this morning. I didn't get them. I'm still upset about it. I still want them. I might go to an app later on the day and spend two hundred dollars over retail to get them because I want them because the tribe wants them. And and if you don't monitor your 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 spending in, in your balances in a constant, you know, kind of ledger in your mind. You can overspend. And that's the danger with somebody who gets into the credit card path who hasn't been educated on it in school or by their parents. Got it. Yeah, that makes sense. And so in an ideal world, you'd have a credit profile. And I'm kind of summarizing here. So correct me. Correct me how I'm wrong. But you're looking at a credit profile that has something equivalent to installment payments, whether it's a car loan or, um, you know, maybe maybe you own real estate. So that one is recurring on a periodic basis. You have um, a profile that includes a credit card, more of a spending transactional based credit mechanism. What what else would you add to that mix if you were sort of rounding it out? And what well, about is, a debit card? Sorry. Yeah, debit. Kidding. Yeah, great question. Debit cards, and I get this a lot, and I think people are ashamed to ask questions about credit, and it's shocking to me to think that they are because, you know, I got into this business years ago because I wanted to know what I didn't know. I knew enough to know there was a lot that I didn't, but I also knew that I wanted to know it. And debit cards don't have any impact on your credit score. And the reason why is you're not using it from a credit perspective. So when you take a step back and you think about it, a debit card functions today a lot like a credit card does. It has a Visa logo on it. It has a little icon on it. You can swipe it everywhere, the same thing. But you have to have dollars in it in order for that to be useful. If it's negative or zero, it'll just decline your card. The right. same way a credit card, once you go over your balance, winds up being negative. We we think of that, and that that's a very common question. It's shocking how much a younger generation looks at that and says, well, that's a credit card. It's got a visa sign on it. No, yeah. it's just taken everywhere that visas accept it. 
anybody who takes a credit card can also take that. So yeah, those don't impact your credit score whatsoever. And that's a very, very, very common problem with the younger generation who says, oh, I've got a credit card, I'm good. When so you come it's to better talk to, to, to open that credit card. It's not bad to have the debit card, but you'd also be beneficial to also have a credit card so you can start building your credit as opposed to just relying on that, almost like a gift if, card until it runs out, you know. 100%. If you're young and you're just getting started and you're looking to establish credit, opening up a credit card, you'll probably get a low $500 balance. At least that's what it was when, when I was young is your initial opening balance. It might be a little bit more mm-hmm. now. But you take that credit card and you use it. And one of the best tips I give people is even if you don't plan on using it because you got all the cash in the world, and you don't want to live off credit. There are some things you get benefits from. Right. So I'll use a great example uh, that same Wells Fargo credit card that I told you I still have to this day that I got. If I put my AT&T bill through that credit card, that actually works as an insurance policy. If anything ever happens to my phone, I crack it. Wells Fargo has a, a little benefit where if you pay your AT&T bill with them, then you get free insurance on your phone. You just submit your insurance claim to them. So different credit card companies have different benefits. But what I always tell people is if you have a gym membership or you've got some kind of reoccurring payment, maybe you got a Peloton, put that on your on your card and set it up on auto pay. And in your mind, it's coming out of your checking account because it's on auto pay, but it's showing activity on your credit card every single month where you're charging a little bit and you're paying it down. You're charging a little bit and you're paying it down. And that way you're, you're getting consistent action and traction on your cards and you're not just, you know, leaving it there with no balance ever. And that actually does negatively impact your score over time. Mm-hmm. What happens when it, you, know, you, let's say, like you said, you open a bunch of cards and then you, you pay them out at zero and it, it's negative. To, it's not good for you to necessarily go and close that account. But if over time they naturally close, like sometimes a retailer will say, okay, if your you know, account's been dormant for five years, we're just going to close it. Is yeah. that, does that hurt you? It does. It does. And that, that that's kind of the crazy thing, right? I, I used to have a Nordstrom card. The same thing happened to me. And I remember as a credit guy, I was like, what? You can't take my credit away from me. Like, this is insulting. But yeah. that, that's the way a lot of these retailers try to get you know extra funds off. You think about it from their perspective. You spend more money at their store because you have a credit card with them. But the credit card's usually issued by another bank, some third party. It's just in their name, mm-hmm. right? But they get there's a financial incentive for them to do so. You spend more money in their shops. But at the same time, if you're not using it, then they have lines of credit out to people that aren't using it. They probably have a limited relationship with their bank and they got to close those so they can get more people out there who are actually going to spend. Again, if you're not paying for it in life, you're usually the product. Yeah, right. Got well it. said. Um, yeah, it is interesting to, to think that these these institutions can just turn around and, and turn your credit off. And I think until we get banking as a service um, fully, fully out there, these companies are going to be reliant on third party institutions to offer those credit cards through. And, you know, while you might think you have a Nordstrom card, the card is actually with a major financial institution. Um, oh, yeah. And, you know, they they can do essentially what they what they see fit with that particular person's card. And, and they do. And that's and that's kind of one of the things to me that, that's shocking to see that that you can almost be peer pressured in that way to use the card or lose the card, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. for sure. Or, with the traditional credit card, you wouldn't get that. You know, Chase, Wells, B of A, you know, First Foundation Bank, you're not going to get that kind of pressure from from a bank that that wants you to have a credit card out there. And, and it, you know, there's not the capital requirements and things that other vendors would have. But there's also a different motive, right? They want you to use it to spend. A lot of banks used to back in the day, they used to attach them as overdraft protection, right? If you spent more money than you had in your checking account, what did they do? They took it straight off your credit card. Oh, uh, is that right? Notice. Yeah, that, that was 
that was a common shtick back, you know, 20 years ago where you, hey, man, you need a credit card because here's why. If you ever overdraft, this will protect you. And they didn't yeah. give you overdraft protection lines. They just gave you credit cards. Got it. So okay, I feel let's like we, shift gears real quick. And I want to oh, go ahead. Did you have one other point? Yeah, I, I did want to clarify one yeah, sure. thing in that we've been talking a lot about, you know, kind of utilizing credit and not utilizing credit. I wanted to make sure that so 35 percent of of your credit score, your FICO score is derived from your payment history. OK, so have you paid on time? Have you paid as, as agreed? Have you had any violations in your contractual requirement to pay a certain dollar amount? Right. You know, 30% of it is the amounts owed. That's kind of what we're talking about. Do you owe any money? Have, you know, do you owe too much money? You, you Basically, how much of your credit have you utilized? Then you've got some stuff like, you know, it's 10% for your credit mix. What types of credit that you have? Like, for example, we talked about installment loans revolving. That doesn't necessarily say that that if you have one or the other, it's bad. But if you have too much of one or too much of the other, definitely not, not so strong for your score. 15% is length of history. And that goes back to, you know, what we were talking about when you know we, we our parents brought us in right oh 18 years old you go in you get a you get a credit card well now you've had it for five years for six years you go to buy a home your credit score is stronger because it's now rooted in a longer time period mm-hmm. you know and that's not something we traditionally think about and this is why i think kids in high school should be you know should be made aware of this because by the time they figure it out years have gone by yeah you think you almost go the opposite way people wait till they're so much mm-hmm. older to get a credit card because they want the responsibility of paying it off when in reality just have that 500 limit one and and, and start help. there because yeah. that trade line acts as an anchor. And here's the trippiest part is the remaining 10% is new credit. If you have new credit, it actually brings your score down for a little bit of time. So if you go out and try to remedy this real quick because your score is not so great, <laughs> it brings it back down. Oh yeah. my gosh, you're so right about the word manipulation because you can use it. You can change it so many different ways. And people do. And, and yeah. there, are com- there are companies that specialize in this. And, and what I tell people is, is look, there, there's a lot of companies that specialize in a lot of things, but there's certain things in life that you just got to take pride of ownership in and develop. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a perfect segue. I, that's where I wanted to sort of go with is, is if you do find yourself in, you know, wherever you might be in your financial journey, as we like to talk about here on this podcast, you, you're in a situation perhaps where you want to start looking at buying a home or you want to qualify for some type of loan, but your credit is bad. So this mix is 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 really helpful. And again, um, I think you know your point is really well taken. You you can you can control your own destiny here. Um, what are so for those people? What are your some of your recommendations? Is the first couple steps to get get back on the right path? So I would tell you that this has actually changed for me uh, in, in recent years because of technology. Right. So. Traditionally speaking, there's, there was a hard pull of your credit report. So I'm going to pull your credit report, get your get all the trade lines that you have, all the all the lines of credit that you have out there and what they're, who they're with, and then your payment history for the last 12 months. And they get a full report on you, and that would come with a FICO score, a credit score that would either come from Experian, TransUnion, or Equifax, or all three, something people call a trimerge. But now, something called a soft pull is an option. Someone can just pull and get your number and not get you all that extra information and give you an idea of your credit score. But even better today still... Is like our app with First Foundation Bank. We have it. There, there are apps like Wells Fargo, Chase, B of A that have their banking apps, even American yeah. Express as well. You can say, see, let me see my FICO score. Let me see my credit yeah. score. You tap in the app and it takes you right to a score. Now, it's not 100% accurate. It's not an actual credit score, but they, these companies know the algorithm. They get a soft pull of your credit report from the credit reporting agencies and they can recreate 
the score like Experian, Equifax, and TransUnion do to kind of give you an idea of what your score looks like. you got a range like. of where you're at. It's usually a direct score, but it is that you can perceive it as a range, right? Plus or minus yeah. a couple points one way or the other. Okay. And so to answer your question, Tyler, if you have a credit score, it's 660 to 680. That's kind of the low spectrum of, of what I think you can get traditional good financing for. Anything lower than that, I wouldn't say it's an absolutely terrible score, but I would say you probably got some homework to do. Yeah. But you, you got to start with knowing what your score is and figuring out how it got there. For some people, customers of First Foundation Bank can go onto our app mm -hmm. and get uh, a, a credit score that is directionally correct. It might not be up to the date perfectly accurate, but because of the way we pull it with this um, soft credit, you'll get essentially a, a pretty accurate depiction of where your credit is today. A pretty accurate depiction. And what I like to do, a guilty pleasure, is that I like to go to all the apps that I have and kind of pull the range. Right. And like I mentioned earlier, I kind of fall in that balance between high 70s, low 8s. And yeah. you know, every once in a while, you know, American Express might have me at 802 and First Foundation might have me at 798. And then I, I cuss in my head about First Foundation and then I go back to, <laughs> to reconciling. It doesn't really matter at that point. And I think that's the other lesson there, too, is it doesn't really matter what general vicinity you're in as long as you're above, call it, you know, 720, 730, 740, somewhere in that range. Anything okay. above that, it really doesn't matter. So I tell people, if you're 660, 680, you want to be in the 700 range. Low sevens, mid sevens, whatever you want to be. Anything above that, great, good for you. But shockingly, the most sophisticated financial people that I know, the, the, the real estate investors of the world, the entrepreneurs, I don't know entirely what, what the psychology is behind this. They usually have the worst credit scores. Not terrible, not like, you know, 400s or 500s, but they usually have credit scores in the mid sixes or high sixes. Well, it's the, adage, it's the age, old, age old adage of the, the mechanic always has the, the dirtiest engine, right? I mean, it's kind of the same. I mean, does that apply here? Yeah, or is it I, haven't, I haven't thought about it in that context, but that makes a lot of sense, actually. Yeah. Um, so, you know, they're not they're so busy making deals. And, you know, looking at one property, to the next, they're not taking the time to take to do these steps that you're outlining here, which, you know, I, I think um, for those of us that have the luxury to take that time and to do it, I, you know, I, there seemingly is a pretty straight path to, to getting there, whether you're sub 600 or you're mid 600 and you want to get to the next rung or the next tier of credit. Well, it depends on what, what degree uh, of financial position that you're in that led to that, that point anyway, right? If you've mm -hmm. lost your job and you've got other bigger priorities, then, you know, looking at your credit and your situation from that perspective is not, is not going to necessarily help you as a priority, right? You want to okay. get yeah, your cash flow positive, you know, get your cash flow positive. A lot of time, the, the real estate investors and everybody else, you know, they have a different mindset. I think I kind of spoke about it when we first started talking. They look at credit and leverage as a tool, as a vehicle mm -hmm. to build wealth, right? You buy a property, you leverage it to the right you know, dollar amount, and then you can redeploy that leverage capital out to buy another property, all increasing your cash flow one property at a time. Um, that makes so sense. For, yeah. For them, they, they weaponize credit. But if you recall back the usage of credit that I told you about, more often than not, these guys highly use their credit because they're weaponizing it. They're using it as a means to grow their wealth. But their balances to available credit are always high because they're constantly getting these big mortgages and they're sure. constantly renewing them every couple of years. So it actually drags their score down with time. Uh, and I'll use myself as a great example. This way I don't have to single anybody out. I've got a lot of mortgages. I own a lot of rental property. If you yeah. look at my credit report, 
I've got, you know, a number of, of mortgages that I pay every single month. And it looks like, wow, this guy's putting out a lot of a lot of money. But in actuality, I have tenants in those properties and those tenants are paying me rent. But it shows up in my credit report and somebody looks at my credit report is going to say, well, he has a lot of credit utilized for a guy with, you know, this much credit available to him. Got it. So, yeah, and that's that kind of how real estate investors get get impacted a little bit because the score is not built for them. It's built for the general American consumer, consumer, right? Who's who buys one house and lives in one house and maybe has a rental property or vacation property. Well, the conversation can go a couple of different ways at this point because we can talk about how you know at First Foundation Bank or, or really any community bank that builds those relationships that you were talking about before can kind of look past those credit scores and, and really dive into the details of what constitutes someone's personal wealth, if you will, or their total financial picture. You, you know, you kind of hear that a lot. That's one one place we can go. The other one I want to sort of, I don't want to necessarily lose sight of, which is. I think the world of credit from what I'm reading is changing and these, you know, these this oligopoly that exists within the credit reporting world is under some pressure because of the new economy things that we've been talking about. And, and I know, you know, some startup firms are looking at adding like social profile to when I say social profile, I mean, like social media profile to credit scores. Yep. They're looking at app usage. Um, they're looking at other, you know, secondary items that don't necessarily directly relate to a relationship with money, but certainly can gauge someone's profile on how they behave, you know, whether they, you know, log into, I mean, we, we've been kind of picking on Nike and, and Air Jordans, but like, you know, if they log into the Nike app all the time and they're looking to, you know, for the Tuesday drop of the Air Jordans, like, that's a pretty good indicator that they're there they have disposable income or they think they have disposable income which may or may not portend to a credit worthy person so uh, you can either uh, i'll let you sort of choose your own adventure here do you want to talk more about how banks look past traditional credit and you know find ways to do business with people that potentially use credit to their advantage or do you want to talk about the changing world of the the bureaus of credit reporters well, as a PSA, if, if anybody from Nike ever listens to this, I have disposable income. Let me buy the shoes, man. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> we'll come back to that one. I, I want that W. Um, that being said, you know both both topics fascinate me. I can cover the first one a little faster than the second one, and I think it's important to recognize that that we are trying to be different, which eventually segues into the AR argument because that. The way credit score is changing is fascinating. It's a topic that I, I nerd out on on a level that's probably not healthy and my wife is tired of hearing about. Um, right. But one of the things that we do with the bank, which I, I take a lot of personal pride in because our executive team has gathered around this and that's, that's such a rare thing. Every place I've ever been has taken hard line guidance on hard line limits on credit scores, on on understanding people's financial picture. And, and we've had the luxury of growing this brand at, at such a, an expedited pace, not because we're not being sound from a credit perspective. We are, we're being very, I mean, some people even call us conservative, but we don't have a minimum credit score. We can look at the totality of the circumstances and look at and evaluate a person. And, and there's there's so much that's lost in the humanity in that, that, that it's, you go to Wells, you go to Chase, you go to B of A, no disrespect to them. It's just the way the systems are designed when you have scale that large. This is why I love community, regional community banks, is, is you're a number and they don't have the human power or the machine power to really evaluate you beyond the metrics they're just pulling, that credit score, right? 
But you come to someone like us and you have that relationship, that currency, it means so, so much because you can go in and talk to somebody and say, hey, my credit score might be a little low, but I know why it's low. Let me help you understand. And I, you might have some mitigants. You might have uh, you know, great liquidity. You might have good money in the bank. You might have a good income, a solid history of employment. You might have a great net worth. You might have these ways that we can take a look at that and make a decision collaboratively that you're worth the credit risk. And if so, we can even help you rebuild your credit by giving you that credit if we can make sense from from a financial and from a regulatory perspective. Yeah, that makes sense. It's kind of like my, my UCLA Lehigh uh, argument. So you can get into, and I don't, I don't know if Lehigh is an Ivy League, but it, you know, it's kind of like an Ivy League um, status school. You're not getting into UCLA. You're not getting through the application process at UCLA if you don't have a four point whatever GPA. But you could write an essay and get your way into a school like Lehigh. So I'm not necessarily comparing Lehigh education versus a UCLA education. But, you know, certainly two very well-regarded schools that, um, you know, one is a credit score that precludes you from getting past step one. And the other one is more like the regional bank that's looking at the full picture and getting a better in-depth insight to what the student did, extracurricular activities and, and the like to make a better profile and a better gauge of their um, worthiness of being a part of the organization or the institution in that case. Yeah, and that's a great example. I mean, you you get you get somebody who's willing to look at you outside of the the box of numbers that comes you know attached to you. And and I got to tell you, I I um I get frustrated just the same way all of, you know the consumers do. They go to Wells Fargo, Chase, B of A. You go to any large bank, and and you know the credit metrics and the models are built for somebody who's you know, fits a certain mold because that's the best risk profile they can put together to manage right. the scale. But I'll tell you right now, even someone like me, a guy who considers himself a good credit bet, who's a chief credit officer, <laughs> I have I have trouble with banks who'll say, you know what, we can't make you a loan. And I'm going, what? How is that possible? Yeah. <laughs> and and it's it's true because I don't fit the mold. That, that the same way the FICO score isn't built for somebody who's got a more sophisticated financial picture. Most of the underwriting platforms at these banks that look at the credit, they're not built to understand that more sophisticated structure. Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying I'm smarter or they're less smart. I'm just saying it's it's a different mindset for a different end goal, for a different business purpose. I can't advocate enough for community banks being more understanding and more objective and having uh, at least a willingness. It, you go to you go to a larger a larger institution, they're going to say no. That's it. You don't you don't get to talk to somebody. You come to our bank, we say no. I've been on the phone with many customers saying, hey, let me explain to you why we gave you the no, but let me also tell you what you can do to fix that. You're not going to get that other places. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. So it's more than just the milk and the cookies in the lobby. Is that what you're telling me? <laughs> you're going to get a lot more than the milk and the cookies in the lobby. You might even get a high five and a handshake on the way out. All right. The chief that credit officers good. of Wells Fargo has never called me. It's crazy. <laughs> never. He's, never, yeah. he's never called me either, and I've complained a lot. Trust me. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so touch a little bit, with, if you will, for the for the listeners, just on this sort of evolving um, trend of using social interactions, social media interactions, or other sort of non-financial metrics to build a, a, a profile of someone's creditworthiness. 
Oh man, so I get hit up by vendors all the time who who try to sell me on their models. I still think it's it's developing. It's not there yet. So I'm putting a little bit of an asterisk on this conversation. Yeah, in that fair enough. Makes sense. Nobody go home and freak out about talking in front of Amazon, you know, Alexa, or Siri. <laughs> you know, it's not going to change your credit score yet, but one day it will or could. That's the crazy thing. Think about everything that we're doing directionally. If you have social media. I did this the other night, freaked me out. I'm talking about my wife. She wants for Valentine's Day a food processor. Super romantic, right? She says, <clears throat> you know, hey, little little hint, Valentine's Day food processor. I'm like, okay, food processor? You sure? That sounds so unromantic. She's like, yeah, yeah, food processor. I go on Instagram five minutes later. There's a food processor in the little like sponsored app. Thousand percent. That happens to me all the time. Yeah. And that's just weird. Yeah. So but, creepy. But it's so powerful mm-hmm. because now an algorithm has picked up that I want to buy a food processor. I'm not saying you need to model predictive behavior for future behavior, but you also know I'm in the market to shop for it. And you also know that's not a giant leap. Amazon, great example. You Google something, you search for it, you go to Amazon, there's 14 million of them that come up. Hey, you were just looking for me. Buy me, buy me, buy me. But humans are acting in this way and the machines are just learning it and they're getting better at predicting it. And it's only a matter of time before these machines can predict our future behavior on some level and determine if we're going to make a bigger purchase. We're talking about it in small context, a food processor or something on Amazon, but the same behavioral patterns apply to cars. When you go to buy a car, we go online these days. I bought my wife's Tesla. I'm sitting in the garage, so I'm looking at the Tesla. I bought my wife's Tesla completely online, having never actually gone to a dealership and test drove one. Right. You know, you buy so many things that way, and we are really changing the paradigm. It's only a matter of time before the real estate industry is flipped on its People head. People can the buy same a house happens. online nowadays. I mean, it's exactly. not common, but it's it's a possibility. It's exactly well, it's a hundred percent a possibility. And people during COVID were actually kind of demoing this and testing out this theory by doing virtual tours mm-hmm. and making decisions whether they want to buy a house based on a three D walkthrough in a virtual tour. Where is the sun? Oh, it's oh, it's right there. And then they go, okay, I'll buy it. Think about how crazy that is. But that that pattern of behavior from what you're doing online is tracked. It's logged. Not to mention the fact that if someone were to look at things like your Airbnb expenses or your Uber expenses or your travel you know, destinations that are that are being budgeted for you in advance, if somebody had that totality of the circumstances to put together, I would even go so far as to say that's a bigger indication of your future credit profile than what your credit cards say. So to kind of cap that, what we're doing now in, in the credit industry is instead of doing a look back, hey, um, Tyler acted this way for the last five years. This is what his risk profile is going forward. We're now looking forward to Tyler's doing this today. What is he likely to do tomorrow? And that's going to drive how we make decisions based on your credit. And it sounds a little bit like minority report and a little weird. <laughs> yeah, but- it's a little dystopian um, for sure. But it, but I mean... You know, you touched on spending patterns. I mean, what about location, right? So there's location settings on all yep. of our phones. They're tracking us. They know where we are, and you know we can turn them off. But do we really turn them off? Is the question. And not to get too conspiratory theory based <laughs> here, but the reality is they they kind of know where we all are. And so we might say we live in you know a certain zip code, but we spend 99% of our time in another zip code. I mean, that to me would be like a red flag on your on your credit report. And so. If that information would be ported into such credit reporting, you know, capabilities. And so then you would say, well, there's a disconnect. You know, Tyler says he lives at this address, but his phone says he spends 99 percent of his time at this address. And so there, we can't reconcile that. Therefore, 
you know, just like if I put in, you know, the wrong address um, and, and typed it in, you know, they then can not only take that address based on what they have on file, but they can triangulate against real data from, say, my cell phone. Oh, yeah. And, and that's, I mean, it, it is a little far-fetched in, in theory to think that those things are real. But when you start looking, taking a step back and take a 30,000 foot elevation down, these things are already happening. The mm -hmm. only difference is, is we have a cornerstone in a FICO score, a score that was created generations ago, maintained by three private companies, which fine. And I guarantee you they're working on technology to change this too. But I get hit up daily by those vendors that I talk, talked about earlier that are trying to sell me an algorithmic AI based way to evaluate someone's credit profile as an auxiliary way to look at it in addition to the credit score. And their pitch is, and it's, it's a good one, not only are we going to look backwards with the credit score and come up with a number that's indicative of that backwards look, but we're going to look forward based on all these things that you're seeing. And to your point, yeah, if you're in Manhattan, you know, your expense vis-a-vis -vis Uber is going to be a lot different than if you're in Kentucky. Mm -hmm. You know, if you're in Los Angeles, your your dining expense on average is going to be a lot different than your dining expense in Idaho. So th there exactly. are regional trends. And, and what I always tell people is, is, you know, in the early 1900s, you know, real estate meant wealth. If you owned real estate, you farmed something, you, you know, you created some kind of product that was sold somewhere else and that was wealth. And then you went through this industrial revolution. And if you owned a business, that meant wealth. I'm not going to go through the whole detail, but where we are today is data. Data is wealth. Data is success. Data is the currency that we trade in because data is an insight into the relationships that we have, that truest form of currency. So what are we doing? We're trying to find ways to use the data that's been available to us in a way it's never been available before to, to predict, to model, to, to find a way to identify risk associated with each one of us. And that answer is no longer going to be a number it's going to be a much more broad perspective of what credit is. You know, does, I'll, you'll get a report at some point in time and it'll say, does, you know, does this person have a tendency to spend more on revolving debt? Yes or no. Or here's the, here's that number. Does this person have a tendency to buy a lot of properties? Yes or no. Here's that number. And we're going to have risk profiles associated to individual types of behavior that we have, not necessarily, hey, I'm a good credit bet, move on. Because credit is very different, right? If you're going to go buy a Ferrari, that's a different credit profile than if you're going to go buy a home. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And that's what I, I mean, sort of boiling it down, what's your prediction on this? I mean, what in, you know, maybe not necessarily mentioning any specific technology or some of these vendors that you're speaking to, but just in general, what's your prediction for when we'll see some of these ancillary elements become a part of the institution that we know to be credit? So I think we're already seeing it, but we just don't know it uh, on okay. some level. Yeah. Um, so, so I'll tell you that there's some fluidity in how these things are already being done. The, the three major credit bureaus have already changed a little bit of the algorithms over the course of the last couple of years. They've also removed things. Uh, foreclosures and bankruptcies appear a little bit differently or not at all in some circumstances. Um, and then obviously with COVID hitting, we, we're treating a lot of things differently than we once did. And, and that's going to have a, a bit of a spark in how people look at, at credit and really define things, right? I mean, just because you get behind, if the whole world was behind, does that make you a bad credit risk or does that make right. you par, That's a good point. par with society? So we're already seeing some of that in, in, a, in a reactive way, but the proactive way is you're gonna start seeing, you know, algorithms that, that are based off of AI where, where they're, they're gonna do things, 
in addition to your FICO and credit scores, which I think will always be a mainstay and a staple, but they will evolve into a portion of the overall credit picture. You're going to have these algorithms that's going to go out and they're going to find, they're going to crawl the web and they're going to find the, they're going to go through the algorithm of the web and they're going to find things like your social media presence. You know, hey, Chris loves cars. I do love cars. Chris probably spends more than most people on his cars. Yes, I do. My wife reminds me daily. I spend a lot of money on cars, but you can find that out by just looking at my social media profile and an algorithm is going to be able to suck that in. Yeah, I think I think that people get a little weirded out when I say the algorithm. They think, well, that's, you know, kind of far off. We have supercomputers now at, that Google just made one not too long ago. That's the size of a refrigerator. Prior to that, the last supercomputer was the size of a football field. Mm-hmm. And we, we've reached the point of, of quantum computing. And with all this disruption last year, we haven't really talked about it. But you can you can take military grade passwords and you can break them down with this computer in seconds, seconds, military grade. So the predictive nature of what we've come to appreciate of AI is going to change dramatically. And I'll tell you a great way as a corollary of how it's already impacting our lives and we don't recognize it. People look at Tesla as a car. They're a great car on some levels. They're, they're terrible on other levels. Everybody's got opinions. But what I will tell you, you cannot deny is they've been out in the field aggregating driver data. And you can get into my wife's Model X and you can hit drive and it will literally drive you on surface streets, through stoplights, on the freeway, off the freeway, entirely on its own. If we can do that, there's no way in the next four or five years we can't use AI to come up with a better answer to what a risk profile of someone's credit is. Yeah, that's well said. And and I think, you know, it 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 kind of presents a light for a lot of the people that are in that generational cohort that don't have credit or haven't established credit. They don't have to go through the traditional ways of of establishing credit. You know, they're 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 not applicable, frankly, for many. And um, they're not necessarily going to have the same benefits that they did in the last 15, 20, 30 years. So that's a that's a good place to to end. I, I do want to say we're going to have you back. We want to talk yeah. about quantum computing and we want to talk about real estate because I wasn't <laughs> able to. Use, I know your passion for real estate and we, we heard it sort of in your in your comments today. And I wasn't able to use my favorite quote with you, which is real estate is the best investment in the world because it's the only thing they're not making more of. And I don't know if that was um, John Paulson or, you know, if, if you're listening and you know who said that, I don't know. But I know John Paulson loved to throw out quotes about real estate by one home first, by two homes second, by three homes third. He was sort of the, you know, the mm-hmm. American dream is home ownership. But anyway, real estate is something we want to dive more into with you because we hear your passion around it. And then as a maybe an aside, a fun it. one, we could talk quantum computing. Yeah. Oh, oh man. There. Whew. Okay, one thing we do for all of our guests before we let them sign off, and again, you've been very generous with your time, so we appreciate it, is if you were not in this business, what would you be doing? Oh, man, I got to ask that question a thousand and one times growing up because it was my dad's way of trying to say, chase your passion. And I'm like, yeah. I love money, dad. I love money. And then, no, you don't. Um, <laughs> I I think about that a lot. I think now more than ever, I would probably either be working on a car in a garage, very dirty, because I, I just love the idea of building things. And I think that's what attracted me to the bank in general in the first place was building. Yeah. Or I'd be I'd be teaching people um, about financial literacy and trying to get the next generation of kids ahead of where I started. So that's cool. Those are those are noble passions for sure. We appreciate that. So. 
All right. Well, thank you again, Chris. Um, if we want to learn more thank about you, you I know you're thank active you on social media. You're on Twitter and um, you're on LinkedIn and you're sharing all of this wisdom uh, across those channels, particularly of late. So be sure to check those those out as well. Where can they find you on Twitter? My first name, my last name, Chris Nahibi. Yeah. All right. Perfect. Cool. Thanks, Chris. We really appreciate it. Thank you, Chris. All right, guys. Thank you, guys. Take care. Well, we knew he was going to be a, a good guest. That exceeded my expectations. How about you? Yeah, I learned a lot. And I think there's that podcast is going to be a, it, anyone that listens is going to learn something. I think that so much of it changes from when, whether you're, you know, in that 18 to 25 or I'm in my 30s or you're my dad in your 60s. So much has changed over time. So even what, you know, maybe was the right thing to do 10 years ago maybe not now so it's just interesting to how he knows a lot <laughs> and so it's, yeah our, I learned our mission is always to demystify financial services for wherever someone is in their financial journey and this is one where we kind of have to demystify the the mystify so it's almost mm-hmm. like a second order effect because because it's changing and because as yeah. you alluded to it's it's different than when it was 20 years ago you know a checking account and a savings account haven't changed that much but credit and, and the way we view credit is changing really like in front of our eyes. And we're getting, we get a front row seat to it. And that's kind of what we hope to do today for our listeners was to showcase what our executive management team is seeing in the world of credit. Yeah. And, you know, we work for a bank and a financial service company. And, you know, maybe we're not Google or Facebook in the next tech spot, but, you know, we're very lucky to get these front row seats to listen to these things and to learn for ourselves. I mean, I, I, I take it all in and I definitely know I've planned things because of the people that we listen to on a podcast like this. So hopefully yeah, I, I saw you, you were like me. I had, I had two sets of notes, one set of notes for the listeners and <laughs> one set of notes that were for my personal list yeah. of to do's. So that's why I, I definitely have, I probably have a, a list of follow-ups I could email them about all those interesting credit card questions that what should I be doing? But he's he he reminded us though the relationship part of banking. So yeah. that is an easy plug for us to give for our bank just because you know there's a lot of different services that fit people in all different banks of different sizes. But that relationship aspect, which I see firsthand here, it is so crucial to have someone to talk to about it because not everyone does work for a bank. Not everyone can go to their chief credit officer's office and ask. But it it makes such a difference to have a human being to talk to not just looking at an online banking report so that's well said yeah, yeah it's a good way to end it too so with that this concludes our wealth and well-being podcast join us again for next time <laughs>